Father Thomas Keating says that whenever we come to the Eucharist, we encounter the presence of Christ in five ways. Christ is present in the assembly, which is the fancy liturgical term for the congregation. Christ is present in the reading and the hearing of the biblical witness, particularly the gospel. Christ is present in the prayer of consecration, the canon of the mass that the priest, the presider uh, recites. Christ is present in the bread and the wine. And Christ is present in each of us as we go out into the world to be the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be. I mention this because the three great theological themes of Easter, the love of God, the, li the light of God, the life of God, and the love of God, all flow from this presence. And the readings today have something to do about maybe understanding the presence, understanding how we appropriate it, uh, seeing the centrality of the Eucharist in our common life together. Certainly the second reading and the gospel uh, allude to that, that it is very important. And the Eucharist is one of the fourfold uh, shapes to the great 50 days of Easter and at, on the great vigil the, the Eucharist is the fourth part of the, the four parts of the service. So I decided reading the readings that I preach on all of them uh, for a number of reasons. Mainly this issue of the presence of Christ, but also because I keep saying over and over again uh, what my teacher O.C. Edwards said, you know, it's not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. And we have an account in the book of Acts today about Paul, Saul's conversion, as it is described in the book of Acts. And we also know, some of you who have made read in the Bible a little, may know that uh, uh, there is another account of his conversion that he wrote in Galatians, and it doesn't agree. So we may need to find out why that is so and to remind ourselves in the process that uh, the Christians who put together the Christian scriptures didn't seem to be as upset as people these days with the fact that there are contradictions and inconsistencies. You know, it may seem funny to you because there's all this kind of, you know, gratuitous talk about uh, literalism and fundamentalism and so on. We live in the most literalist age I can think of. And I think it has a lot to do with uh, the whole issue of how we think about things. And so in an odd sense, people who have it in for fundamentalists, or at least uh, have some uh, critical distance from them, as I do and many of you do, uh, could also fall into the trap of thinking uh, in fundamentalist terms ourselves by virtue of saying, well, if you can't prove this in factual terms, that is to say, in a, in, in a scientific way, then uh, it can't be true, you know? And the Bible is true, and some of it happens. <laughs> <laughs> right? So the story of Adam and Eve, for example, is not about two historical figures, but it's a true story. 
And if you're too literalist in your outlook, you don't get that. Because, you know, you think these are pious myths that we simply can't uh, find useful in our, our way of understanding how human beings are. That was a little bit of a digression, but I want to talk about the conversion of Paul and what it might mean and why Luke has a particular view of this and why Paul has a particular view of this and how in a very Episcopalian or Anglican fashion these two views come to a middle point of view even in the biblical witness itself. And I want to begin to do a little preaching from the book of Revelation because as I say to you all the time, you know the people who heard the book of Revelation read to them and who read it themselves the first time understood what it meant. They did not need an interpreter to explain to them all of the apocalyptic and symbolic material in the uh, apocalypse. They knew what it meant. They knew who was being referred to. And today, we have a description in this very short reading of the heavenly liturgy. And if you go to a Russian Orthodox church or an Eastern Orthodox church, Greek church, you probably see this uh, on a regular basis at the liturgy, two and a half hours long. When will this ever end? <laughs> but they're trying to recreate this whole idea. But it has something to do with the presence. And finally, in John's Gospel, the third resurrection appearance, where um, Jesus appears to the disciples, or the apostles, on the beach, and he cooks fish, and he helps them catch a bunch of fish, and then he gives Peter a kind of missionary command that through, flows through Peter to the rest of the church. And uh, I thought I'd say a little something to you about what it means when Peter said that he loved Jesus and Jesus asked him this question, which is the great question uh, we're being asked by extension on a regular basis. So, from the book of Acts. Remember that our patron wrote two volumes, the Gospel according to St. Luke and the book of Acts. So, inside baseball biblical talkers uh, refer to it sometimes as Luke Acts. So if you ever use that terminology around anybody, they go, whoa, gee. <laughs> Volume one, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus. Volume two, the presence of the Holy Spirit now transferred to the people of God we call the church, and we all become the fiduciaries and the beneficiaries of the Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, one of the main themes of Luke. But also Luke is concerned to say something about the history of the early church. And for Luke, the church coming into being is part of the plan of God. It wasn't just sort of an accident. So he's less concerned about the, well, he said he was going to come again. <laughs> and he's not here. <laughs> so how do we do, what do we do with that? Well, maybe this is part of the deal. And so you and I have a role to play in big and small ways in the history of God's saving work in the cosmos. So Acts is about that to some degree. And we have a, the famous account of the conversion of Saul, who becomes Paul in today's gospel. This is a conversion story. And it describes... Paul's conversion in a way 
that um, uh, those people who study this and go and pore over it would say there's imagery in this section of Acts that comes from some of the intertestamental literature between the Old and the New Testament and uh, the apocryphal literature, we call it, like four Maccabees. So Luke must have known something about that, and he describes these visions that, that Paul seems to have in the course of this description. Now, here's what Paul says in Galatians. But when God, who had sent, set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. So the common thread that runs from Luke's account to Galatians is Damascus. But everything else is different. And he doesn't describe this as a conversion experience. Paul didn't understand himself to, to be converted from one religion to another. And for all we know, he remained a pious and faithful Jew for his entire life, but he believed that it was his vocation to talk about God's inclusive saving embrace to everybody, not just the people of the covenant. And so he believed that it was possible to say that when we associate with the Gentile community, we are not obliged to require that they keep the law, nor do we become martinets around them because we insist on it and they don't do it. That that's not a necessary thing, as an example. So here's the reason there's a discrepancy. And it's a question of understanding the nature of the presence. Paul believes his call is direct, and he is not dependent on the tradition that Luke describes in the book of Acts. Just hold that for a minute. Luke uh, is writing in what is called the sub-apostolic age. And so he believes that Paul cannot be an apostle. There are 12 apostles, and they were the apostles, the eyewitnesses. Paul can't be one. He can be a successor to the apostles, but he can't be an apostle. So the way Luke writes this is, Paul stands out now as a template for the apostolic continuity of the church's life. And that's how he wishes to understand and use Paul. Paul, on the other hand, wishes to assert his independence and believes his apostolic call is direct and he understands himself to be an apostle. It's to Paul's credit that he begins to see over time that there is a middle way, that while he still believes in his independence, he has to acknowledge his dependence on the tradition. And so in Corinthians, we have a couple of passages which give support to the idea that Paul realizes that he has received a tradition that he is also handing on to the people with whom he comes in contact in his missionary work. So what this means is, of course, that 
Luke and Paul, dependent, independent, we come now to the middle. Uh, somewhat independent, but also dependent on the tradition, you know? Just like I told you, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They're running away from that posse and that sheriff with the boater hat on is riding after them constantly, right? And they're, they are, I mean, they cannot get away from this guy. Nobody knows, you know. And finally, they're at that famous scene where they're on the, hit, on, the, on the mountain, and they're about ready to jump into the water. And one of them, Sundance or somebody, says, I don't know how to swim. And Paul Newman says, well, hell, the fall will probably kill you. <laughs> right? So they look out the mountain, and here's the posse again coming at them with this guy with the boater hat on. They said, who is this guy? That's what the, the early church thought about Paul. That's Paul. He's out there. He will come to Jerusalem ultimately, as it's recorded in the book of Acts, but not when it says here. And Luke is attempting to say, we need to uh, somehow make connected these disparate threads in our common life together. Does that make sense so that you understand that the tradition is uh, multifaceted when we talk about this? This has to do with the presence because God's converting power can be understood in more than one way. And so if we talk intellectually about the presence of Christ or the presence of God, in some ways each of us appropriate that in our own fashion for ourselves. And often we can only do it when we look at our own personal history in retrospect. And we can begin to see, you know, the power of God working uh, in our lives. So that's what this is about. Remember that I told you that in the book of Revelation, everybody knew what all this meant. We didn't have to wait for Hal Lindsey to write the late great planet Earth or any of the other uh, books on the book of Revelation. Uh, the people who read it and heard it knew what it meant. And this is a description of the heavenly liturgy. It's a description of what the liturgy would be like in heaven with all the angels and all the choruses and all of these things. And there's some fragmentary lines in this reading from Revelation which uh, have some connection to things that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians. And it's believed by many that there are some sentences in here that come from some of the earliest and perhaps the original Paschal liturgies of the Christian church. Who was and is to come, you know, that sort of stuff. And so this is a description of what? The presence transcends space and time. And we're going to now talk about that a little in a few weeks when we get to the ascension where Jesus now becomes, transcends space and time. I read an interesting thing I, in, a, in a little book yesterday by a Scottish Episcopal priest named Watt, who was describing uh, the language and, and, and how we use these, the limits of language. Transcendence is, is, is a word that describes something that is really an ordinary thing. It's like talking about a river running well, rivers don't run, human beings run. But in our language, we describe that the river runs. So electricity 
which we know exists and we can't explain, really, we refer to as current, like the river. It's an, it's an ordinary word, but it takes on sometimes some highfalutin dimensions, doesn't it? Right? So when we talk about the transcending of space and time, you know, rising above it is what it means. To be above is instead of right here. So transcending space and time means the presence. And this is what this is about on the third week of Easter. And the Eucharist's presence and influence in Christian people's lives uh, has that transcendent power. So now we have Jesus on the shore. And I'll just explain some of this. He, here's always what you need to know about the resurrection appearances. Uh, he is not initially recognized, but he's clearly physically uh, and in his demeanor resembles Jesus, but he's not initially recognized. And so he's transformed in some way. So the risen Christ looks different to the eyewitnesses. That's a whole, we don't, I don't want to get all into that today, but that's what is part of this. And then they come to it, you know, when they see him functioning and speaking and so on, and they're out fishing. In early Eucharist, particularly I think in the Johannine community, they ate fish as well as bread and wine. So the Eucharistic imagery here is, is very uh, important. And that's the first part of this. Jesus, uh, uh, they're having trouble catching the fish and he tells them to cast their net on the right side of the, the boat and they do, and they can't haul the fish in. And when they haul the fish in, they count them, and there are 153. Uh, I read in a commentary about this. The 153 clearly has a symbolic meaning to the community that wrote this gospel, but it is lost for eternity. Okay? Does it mean the 153 congregations or communities or people and what, what it means, something, we don't know what it means. So there's no use trying to get all exercised about it. It's just lost uh, for all eternity in that sense. But after this, Jesus says something to Peter. He asks him if he loves him. Here's part of the O.C. Edwards thing. And why being a student of the Bible is important. I, I realize that I'm, I haven't said this ever in a sermon, but I can in the Greek text, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Agapeo. He responds, Lord, yes, Lord, I love you. Phileo. I read that this week. Agapeo means, do you love me unconditionally? Phileos means, I love you like a brother or a sister. Okay? So he asks him again, do you love me? Agapeo. And he says, you know I love you, phileo. And finally Jesus says to him, do you love me, phileo? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you, phileo. And it seems that Jesus settled on a conditional love. <laughs> All right? What, who cares? 
Well, you know what? I think that's probably what most of us are like with regard to our commitments to God, to loving God, to loving Jesus. It's conditional. It isn't unconditional. We say we would like it to be conditional and maybe think it. We say that about our family members, you know, but <laughs> that's not always true. But you know what? If there's anybody who should be idealists in this world, it's Christian people. And so maybe unconditional is uh, what we're shooting for, but we need to have the sure confidence that even with conditional, we can do great things. So Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep. He doesn't rebuke him for his qualified love. He'll take it. <clears throat> so if you and I beat ourselves up about the fact that we still we sometimes worry about whether we can perfectly do this, we may not always think about it in spiritual or religious terms. We think about it in personal relational terms. We worry about whether we're doing this stuff or whether we're committed enough. We're doing, you know. And we have to remind ourselves that God meets each person where he or she is and unconditionally loves us. And all that we get from the biblical witness in the tradition with a capital T is that God never runs, he never leaves, he's never absent, even if we think he is. And so it is important that we see that we're able to, be, to do apostolic work, which is what this passage is about and therefore be instruments of the presence of Christ. So this week, give thanks for the presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the five ways that I have described. Give thanks for uh, in the midst of uh, waywardness or um, inconsistency, uh, God can use you and loves you unconditionally and uh, give thanks for the opportunity to do apostolic work. Amen.